for Pacifica Radio, April 10th, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director of Antiwar.com and author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,600 of them now going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing Antiwar.com's news editor, Dave DeCamp. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, sir? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Uh, very happy to have you here and very happy to have you writing at news.antiwar.com there with Jason Ditz and also now um, pretty much full-time with Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter as well. And um, we're kind of uh, sharing news writers with other friendly organizations. Uh, but so you have been doing, you and the boys have been doing such a great job of keeping up with what's going on in the war in Ukraine. So... Can we start with the battlefield? Overall, I guess the word is the Russians are withdrawing from much of their positions in certain parts of the country and maybe not so much in others. Can you give us sort of an overview, if not too detailed of a study here? Yes. So the latest is that uh, Russia has withdrawn completely from the north, from areas near Kiev and Chernihiv. Uh, and if you look at you know the maps now, of the uh war in ukraine uh you know the russian forces are they're only in uh eastern ukraine in the donbass and other areas just just outside of it but so now their assault is pretty much totally focused on the donbass like they said uh on march 25th the russian military announced that the they said what they called the first stage of the invasion is over and that they're going to focus on the donbass um, so, you know, the Western and Ukrainian narrative is that Russia was defeated in the north there and that they retreated and then uh, saying that they're going to focus on the Donbass is they're just trying to save face. Um, you know, Russia has definitely taken some losses. Again, on March 25th was the last update. Uh, Russia's defense ministry said that they lost over 1,300 troops, uh, which is a significant amount. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of photos of burnt out Russian tanks, you know, on the streets of these northern, outside of these northern cities. But I, you know, Russia says that they never intended to take Kiev or other major cities in the north there. And, uh, you know, I, I, the reason I believe them is that they never really unleashed, you know, the full force of their air force. They never, they didn't really put these cities under siege the way they did Mariupol, which is in the Donbass. And, uh, so, yeah, you know, I think that they definitely have taken some some losses, but it it does doesn't look like their strategy was ever to you know march into Kiev. They say it was to tie down the military while while they were fighting in the east and to take out you know a significant chunk of Ukraine's armed forces and equipment. Uh, so yeah, that's where we're at now, and the the, the fighting is is focused on the Donbass and in the east. There, um, there's still some limited strikes in other parts of the country, but right now that's, that's where all the fighting is. Yeah. Now, so it wasn't really clear at the very beginning what the Russian objectives were going to be. So the question was, are they going to take the whole country, the eastern half of the country, or 
maybe just the Donbass, then it did look like maybe they're going to take the whole east of the country. But you're saying that in hindsight, it seems that the Russians were really just dividing Ukrainian forces so they could, you know, essentially seize the greater Donbass region, especially in the south of the country, including the town of Mariupol and or the city, and then connecting to the Crimean Peninsula. I know the water resources in Crimea are very important there. And that makes sense to me, too. I never believed all the hype. I mean, they were saying from the beginning that Putin's generals had promised that they'd be drinking from Zelensky's skull in a day or in a week or something. But how would they know that? That's obviously such propaganda. And then they said, oh, well, Putin is so angry at all of his ministers for misleading him. Well, how do you know that? If you really do know that, then you're burning your highest level source in the Kremlin just to claim that is just on a thought experiment. It's obviously fake. Now, the question is, I guess, Dave, is it right that now we need to figure out, are they going to essentially seize all of the land in the greater Donbass region, which is a bigger land area than just the land that has been controlled by the separatists? For the last few years there. And are there many Ukrainian army forces that far east in the country anymore anyway for them left to fight there? Yeah, um, to say what their objective is now, it it does kind of seem like the greater Donbass, like you said. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure of the the numbers of Ukrainian forces on the on the ground there. Um, But I know that they were saying they're going to try to send more now that Russia pulled out of the north. But um, like you, another reason, you know, it's interesting because on February 24th, the day that Russia invaded, just talking about the objectives, you know, there's reports in the media that said the U.S., the Pentagon assesses that Kiev will fall in a few days, you know, if that's what Russia wanted to do. Um, now, their assessments have definitely been off. Uh, you know, we could look at Afghanistan, uh, you know, how that withdrawal went. But, you know, the reason why they probably assess that is just because of the size of Russia's military and it's a country, you know, right next door. Um, so I think that says something too. Um, but yeah, for right now it's really just focused on the East. And I think even, you know, there is negotiations going on and they seem pretty intense, but I think no matter what happens, I think Russia's really, they're just going to, uh, try to take the Donbass. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, So let's talk about those negotiations. Obviously, America's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is absolutely worthless. Well, assuming that his job would be to represent the interests of the American people. But do I have it that Israeli Prime Minister Bennett and Turkish tyrant come President uh, Recep Erdogan have actually been working pretty hard on trying to achieve a ceasefire here? Yeah, that that's what it seems like. Uh, Bennett has been, you know, kind of mediating between the two, and Turkey hosted the last, the latest in-person peace talks between the Russian Ukrainian delegation. There was, you know, some progress made. It seemed like after it, Russia said that they were going to reduce their military operations near Kiev. But I think you know that was kind of their plan anyway. Um, they said that they did it as like good faith to facilitate negotiations, but. Um, you know, Ukraine gave them like a draft peace deal. Uh, but the issue is, is that, you know, they, um, you know, the main gripe of Russia is, is NATO is Ukraine's alignment with NATO and Ukraine said that they would give up their, their plans to join NATO, 
But in return, they want security guarantees that are similar to NATO's Article 5, which outlines that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on them, them all. You know, it's the mutual right. defense clause. And they want security guarantees like that from the U.S. and Britain and other NATO countries. And also Israel and Turkey and Russia says they have to be a guarantor as well. But I, I just – that seems like a complete non-starter to me. Yeah, um, and obviously. To, I mean, that's yes. what's at issue in the first place, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, so they want the NATO guarantees without being in NATO, yeah. so it doesn't really change anything. And by the way, you know, Biden, I found in a press conference what, from, I think, one week ago, where Biden sort of blundered and, and stumbled at a press conference and said, well, you know, I think Ukraine probably is going to have to give up some territory, you know, like Crimea and the Donbass. <laughs> oh, really? They are, huh? They're, they're going to have to recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea and the so-called independence of the Donbass under Russian, you know, pretended protection here, as, as they call it. Well, they could have made that deal back in the beginning of February, in the middle of February, and averted this war. Same thing with uh, Zelensky saying, yeah, I'll sign a neutrality deal. Well, neutrality plus recognizing Russian sovereignty over Crimea and essentially being willing to give up the Donbass at that point, which had already been independent under, you know, pseudo-Russian protection, sort of, for the last uh, eight years, in a way, anyway. If that's not too uh, much of a road to hoe for them now, how come they wouldn't just make this deal then? Yeah, I mean, and that that the same goes for the whole NATO membership thing anyway, that the whole time leading up to it, to the invasion apparently they were telling ukraine behind the scenes that you're not going to be joining nato right and biden also said publicly, and in front of the scenes too yeah <laughs> i mean yeah yeah oh. he said it's not going to happen anytime soon which like if if you're acknowledging it's not going to happen within the next 10 years and if making a promise that they won't join nato to avoid a would avoid a war like why not try it i mean it, i just think that says so much about uh how the Biden administration, you know, this is the result that they wanted. So they could implement the sanctions and fund an insurgency on Russia's uh, doorstep there. Yeah. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm talking with Dave DeCamp, news editor at antiwar.com. Now talk to me a little bit on these same uh, lines here. This Washington Post story, they talked about the importance of this war to NATO. And this really kind of shocking quote, I guess it's, a rough paraphrase of their sources, uh, but in the words of the Washington Post reporter, well, what does it say? Go ahead. Well, yeah, the report, it said, uh, for some in NATO, it's better for the Ukrainians to keep fighting and dying than to achieve a peace that comes too early or at too high a cost to Kiev and the rest of Europe. Which, yeah, it's a pretty incredible quote line from the Washington Post report. Like you now, said, they didn't... I'm sorry, so go ahead and if you could break it down <laughs> for us a little bit about what exactly they're talking about, about the cost to NATO and what's worth it to them in this context and all that. Yeah, so what I think it means, um, you know, that they would rather have Ukrainians fighting and dying than to achieve a peace that comes too early means, you know, where if, if a ceasefire was negotiated now... The Estonian prime minister kind of hinted at this in an interview yesterday. She said pressure for a ceasefire too soon will mean that Russia gets to keep the territory it's occupying, which right now is really just in the east there. So I think that's what 
And which, again, I just said the president of the United States himself has acknowledged it's going to go to Russia eventually anyway. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, you could say if they wanted that territory, if they really cared about that territory, I mean, the best way to have have kept it as part of Ukraine was to fulfill the Minsk agreements that uh, under those you could say that maybe they uh, they were a little vague, these deals, but. Under the Minsk Accords, um, the Donbass would have remained part of Ukraine. They would have had to cede some level of autonomy, but it still would have been technically Ukrainian territory. Um, but now, yeah, it seems like they they really uh, care very much about that. So it's kind of the narrative is the na- is that if we cede this to Putin, he's going to regroup and then uh, he's going to keep going. Uh, he's going to keep going west into the Baltics, into Poland. But which, if you're going by the narrative, the mainstream narrative that they're pushing, that Putin's an irrational madman who's bent on world domination and is just doing this because he's a big, mean bully, then, yeah, you could think that. But I I would have to assume that these leaders, these Baltic leaders and these NATO uh, officials have to understand, you know, why this is happening. It's very clearly laid out, and and they've all kind of known that uh, Russia's red lines about Ukraine and NATO. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's just more about kind of, they, they just want to keep Putin maybe tied down in Ukraine or just, uh, hurt Russia as much as they can. Um, but yeah, it's, that's just what it seems like to me. That's the thing, right? They can't even specify exactly what the cost would be to NATO here other than what, their credibility in defending a nation that's not part of the alliance? And then, as they even put it, that's pretty cold. I mean, for the um, Washington Post to put it that way, you know, obviously they're very closely reflecting the thinking of their sources. That, yep, it's better to have a war in Ukraine, and that means that, oh, yeah, the Ukrainians, yeah, they will get exploded to death. Yeah, that'll be part of it. But we'll be achieving some objectives, which, you know, again, are not very specific beyond, you know, being afraid to look weak or something like that, I guess. Right. Yeah. And they also act like it's about these principles and like it's symbolic, like it goes back to there's a Ned Price quote that we talked about the last time I was on here, the State Department spokesman. You know, he said that the war in Ukraine, it's it's bigger than Russia and Ukraine. It's about a nation's right to choose how they align themselves, <laughs> like whatever that means. Um, these are the things, you know, while Ukrainians are being killed and fighting and dying and, you know, they're talking about these just principles uh, that just don't make any sense. Um, so it does seem really uh, cold. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys. Anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all. LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. LibertasBella. From the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War. 
nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Yeah, and really it does come down to, I hate this, but it really does come down to, doesn't it, that um, they don't want to admit that this is their fault at all. They can't even blame George Bush and say, well, George Bush is the one who promised to bring Ukraine into NATO. He makes bad decisions sometimes. Or Donald Trump, why? He, uh, he flew a bunch of bomber missions right off the Russian coast, and that's what provoked them. Why can't they just say that? Instead, they know it's their fault. So they have to just say, Putin woke up on the wrong side of the bed after 22 years and became, before he was mean, now he's the world's greatest madman. You know, I don't know. I hear him saying, well, he must have some kind of disease or something. So, or You know what I mean? They, they can't say, yeah, well, no, it was all y'all's provocations. You know, I think yeah. we talked before, Dave, about the New York Times piece from December where they said, we're very carefully calibrating the amount of weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine to be enough to deter Russia from invading, but not enough to provoke them to invade. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, either they calibrated it up a few notches in order to provoke an invasion, or they're very poor at calibrating how many weapons to pour into a country in order to deter but not provoke. Either way... They admit in their own words there, essentially, that they're helping to cause the war to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that report, and you mentioned earlier about how them saying uh, Putin's advisors are lying to them or uh, things like that. There's a pretty major story yesterday in NBC News. Um, it, it quoted uh, three U.S. officials, you know, unnamed sources that said that Biden administration, the U.S. has been putting out information based on intelligence, based on low level intelligence, basically based on stuff that they don't they don't know if is true. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty incredible report. You should everybody should read it with their own eyes to believe it. Um, and by know, the way, admitting... let me let me stop you right there to say this previous one that we're talking about where, again, uh, they say. For some in NATO, it's better for the Ukrainians to keep fighting and dying than to achieve a peace that comes too early or at too high a cost to Kiev and the rest of Europe, states the article. And that Washington Post article is called, if anybody's looking for it, it's from April the 5th. NATO says Ukraine to decide on peace deal with Russia within limits, as in imposed by the West. And this one that Dave's talking about now in uh, NBC, also a remarkable story. In a break with the past. Yeah, right. That's what it's called, though. In a break yeah. with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. So this is essentially them admitting that, yeah, we've been kind of BSing about a lot of these things. And then they cite those specific examples, right? This stuff about... Uh, what they pretend to know about what's going on inside Putin's inner circle and this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it opens, it talks about the chemical weapons claims. Um, you know, over the past month, you know, president Biden himself has said that, uh, he thinks 
Russia was preparing to use chemical weapons. The White House said it, Jen Psaki, uh, I think Jake Sullivan mentioned it. And then this this article, it says that they had no evidence that uh, Russia had brought chemical weapons near Ukraine. They described it as a, a low-level confidence intelligence, um, but they shared it anyway. They shared it with the world, and you know they fed it to media outlets. Um, and it also says, um, you know, if you've seen this claim that Russia asked China for military assistance in the war, uh, this it said uh, one European official and two U.S. officials said that was not based on hard evidence, meaning that they didn't know if it was true at all. And that's uh, just like a, kind of a strange one for them to lie about because. There's all these reports. U.S. officials say Russia asked China for military aid in the war in Ukraine, saying it as a fact, something that they know isn't true. Just, you know, this proves that they've been lying. And it's really strange that they are admitting it. I don't get the strategy there. Um, And yet and also Putin's that there's the reports that said Putin's inner circle was misleading him about the war in Ukraine. They said that wasn't based on that was more based on analysis than intelligence. So it's just something they they were guessing. Pretty much. And also, Damn. you talk about the weapons that'll provoke, that could potentially provoke Russia. This is a great example of how they're deceptively putting this information out to kind of push their own narrative and fool people. So, there was a plan to send MiG fighter jets, Polish MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. Poland didn't want to do it themselves, so they told the U.S., we'll give you the MiGs, send them to Germany, and then you can send them to Ukraine however you want. And the Pentagon decided they didn't want to do it, and, and they said no. And, and they and they said that they didn't want to do it because Russia would view it as escalatory. Well, this report said that they also determined that Russia would view sending them sending Stinger missile, you know, shoulder fired anti aircraft Stinger missiles to Ukraine as escalatory, but they did it anyway. <laughs> so it shows how they pick and choose what to share and how how they're just using the media. I mean, these claims that they make get picked up. By like every media, you know, major media outlet that there is, it's an information war, and they say it's aimed at Putin. And one official said it; they're just doing it to get in Putin's head. You know, the idea is that they say these things that they think Russia might be doing, and then they they're saying they're doing it as deterrence. But it, I think it, uh, it's also an information war against you know the American people, and it shows that you cannot trust anything this administration says. Yeah. And there's so much propaganda. And seriously, like, this is going to affect Putin when they're just lying about things that he knows firsthand about. He's not going to think, oh, no, they know something I don't, when he does (laughs) know that what they're saying is not right. Uh, The whole thing is just completely crazy. Anyway, um, anti-war radio, talking with Dave DeCamp, and there's still uh, so many things to talk about here. Now, I want to play this clip from uh, Brett Baer, from Fox News. Check this out, everybody. Brett Baer asked a good question, and then they edited the question and the answer out of the official record on the Fox News site, on their YouTube channel, and whatever other thing. But it's on some lesser-known video channels. I want to have have you clear something up for us. Uh, and this is these reports about the Azov Battalion that is said to be Nazi affiliated organization operating as a militia in your country, uh, said to be committing their own atrocities. What should Americans know about that unit, about those re- reports? So Azov was one of those many battalions. 
They are what they are. They were defending our country. And later I want to explain to you. Everything uh, from uh, all the components of those volunteer battalions later uh, were um, incorporated into the, the military of Ukraine. Those uh, Azov uh, fighters are no longer self-established uh, uh, group. They are a component of the Ukrainian military. Back in 2014, there were situations when our volunteers were uh, encircled and some of them did violate laws, uh, laws of Ukraine, and they actually were taken to court and got uh, prison sentences. So law is above all. So a couple of notable things about that. First of all, yeah, they are who they are. <laughs> They're defending the country. Pretty straight up admission. No point in denying it. And then he says, but don't worry, they've all been integrated into the military. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. Somehow that the Ukrainian military is completely infested with Nazis now. Not that the military disarmed them and sent them all home. And then he says, and uh, by the way, back then they went to jail for a little while. But the ones who were prosecuted, they got their convictions overturned and were released. And so I think I see why Fox News censored their own story, their own star reporter and his great question and this horrible answer. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been a lot of uh, kind of Azov rehabilitation in the media. Like uh, CNN had an article, a few other outlets about Azov saying, oh, you know, they, yeah, they were Nazis when they first started, but they're not so much anymore. <laughs> and it really stinks of, you know, the moderate rebels in Syria and the rehabilitation of HTS, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. That I right. saw recently described, I meant, to, I should have sent you this. I think it was AP, but they described Hayat Tahrir al-Sham as a former al-Qaeda affiliate. Uh, I mean, I, I think we've seen this before, but it kind of stuck out to me because uh, that's that's the language now. And that seems to be what they're trying to do with Azov. You know, the New York Times used to describe them as a neo-Nazi militia that's uh, integrated into Ukraine's National Guard. And now they're described as a far right group. And it seems like they're bigger, I mean, than I thought um, because... Uh, you know, I, I thought they were mainly in the east and fighting in Mariupol, but there is after this uh, alleged uh, Bucha massacre. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of people were killed. We're not sure exactly the details of what happened, but the New York Times had pictures. Um, it was actually right before the claims of the mass of the massacre, and the the Ukrainian soldiers patrolling the streets of Bucha right after the Russians left were the Azov Battalion over there, uh, right outside of Kiev. Um, and I know, I think they've been recruiting from Kiev, you know, they, they've been recruiting like international volunteers. So, you know, as it goes in war, you know, the most extreme, uh, factions grow, uh, you know, when you're killing people. Um, so it seems like Azov is growing, uh, and they're trying to whitewash in the, you see the Western media trying to whitewash their history and you wonder how this is going to end up. You know, you mentioned the Lend-Lease program. So that was last night on Wednesday night, the Senate passed a bill that would revive it for Ukraine, this World War II era program that we just sent tons of weapons to the Soviet Union, to China, and then to, you know, the UK and France. And I was, I was looking at the, uh, into, you know, how many weapons we gave to this Soviet Union and it, and it adjusted for inflation, you know, between 1941 and 1945, we gave 
the Soviets $180 billion in aid. Some of it was, you know, cotton and food, but most of it was military aid. So, you know, how did that end up working out for us? And then you look at how is this going to work out? Flooding weapons into this country where there is this real, you know, Nazi presence, um, you know, a few years down the line, where are we going to be? Yeah. Well, fighting them, of course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think we've entered, you know, kind of a new era and there's not any going back for a while, at least, you know, I just can't see whatever kind of, if any kind of peace deal does happen, you know, it's not going to be enough for Biden and, and the, and the Europeans to, lift sanctions on Russia. You know, this is what they want. They want Russia to be isolated and uh, totally cut off. Um, And it's, you know, you see Europe really going to do this. You know, they're preparing a coal ban because how much they're relying on Russian energy. You know, that was part of the reason why I didn't really think this would happen. I didn't think they would really shoot themselves in the foot like that. But they're doing it. And, you know, they have all these plans to get off Russian oil and uh, gas. You know, that'll take a while. And if they do get cut cut off yeah we'll see about that you know i think the i think the europeans are going to be uh still buying they're gonna have to i sure hope that they do i sure hope that they i sure hope that that's what's on the mind of the germans and you know makes them seek to end this war as angela merkel if you remember the story back in 2015 she came to dc to meet with obama and said Look here, Obama, I'm going to make a deal with the Russians and end this war. And he said, OK, ma'am. You know what I mean? It was one, like she paid him the respect of coming all the way to D.C. to notify him that she was going to go and work out a deal. And then he said, fine. And she went straight to Minsk. And, uh, you know, let's hope that they can do something there. Uh, I'd hate to think that it's just up to the Biden administration to decide what to do here. Biden threatened war again today. You know, seemingly off the cuff. If I have to go to war, I'm going to bring you tough union guys with me, he said to a bunch of union guys. Mm -hmm. And then he said, I mean it, just to make sure that nobody thought that he was joking when he came up with that line off the cuff there. (laughs) This is the president of the United States. You know, I don't know, man. Anyway, if we're still alive, I'll talk to you next week, Dave. Thank you. (laughs) That sounds good, Scott. All right, you guys. That's a great Dave DeCamp. He is the news editor at antiwar.com. Find him at news.antiwar.com all day, every day, on top of all the bad news for you there. And this has been Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Thanks very much for listening. Find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash Show. And follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. I'm here every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.